Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Achel Patel, who is the co-founder and CEO at Cabinet Health. He comes from three generations of pharmaceutical, manufacturing, and healthcare professionals. Prior to Cabinet, he was working in medical logistics and supply chain innovation. With that experience came opportunities and ideas, and with those things combined with his partner, Russell Gong, he built Cabinet. It was born as a result of a vision for a more transparent and sustainable healthcare system. Let's jump right in the interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Without further ado, please welcome in Achel Patel. Achel, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat a little bit. You know, some interesting stuff when... When this came across my desk, if you will, um, I'm really interested to dive in the business and and how you guys got that started and and all that stuff. But I thought maybe it makes sense, which is always fun to kind of hear from maybe your voice is how the heck you even got here? You know, we all, what we were supposed to do 10, 20 years ago, whatever, we're not doing today. It's always something different. It seems like we've evolved, changed, we grow and it changes the course of our life. So could you share maybe a turning point or two, uh, maybe it's over the last couple of years, maybe it was even earlier in your life, but that led you down this new path that you're on today and kind of veered you off the one that you were going down? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think this really starts for me with a little bit of personal background in the world I grew up in, and then happy to share really how that turned into um, what I'm doing today. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, quick background from my side, uh, I'm a child, co-founder and CEO at Cabinet Health, but my personal background is I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and healers, I would call it. So I spent my childhood summers in an over-the-counter medicine factory that my grandfather built 55 years ago. Mm. And at a really young age, spent a ton of time in the medicine supply chain. But I think more importantly for a kid, just learning that anything you build in the world of healthcare should help people live healthier, happier lives. And what that led to was this lineage of folks in my family who are all involved in healthcare in some way, shape, or form. I have aunts and uncles in the, in the Madison manufacturing space. My parents are physicians. My brother works at a big healthcare company. And so I grew up in this world where understanding the healthcare value chain, the broader supply chain of how things that we ingest are even made, mm-hmm. um, was very much part of like my family dinner tables. Uh, what was interesting to me, though, is that while that was the world I grew up in, it wasn't always what I was super interested in working in and, and building in. So when I left college, I joined the workforce at a management consulting firm, was thinking to myself, you know, I want to get away from the world of healthcare. I want to get into things that are more like consumer goods, retail, um, and joined this consulting firm and started down that journey of just building kind of my own pathway. Um, fast forward a few la- years later, uh, was really kind of just seeking this opportunity to find more purpose in my day-to-day work and started reconnecting with some of those family roots in manufacturing. Um, was at my aunt and uncle's place one summer, 
just thinking about other ways that we can kind of rebuild the world of over-the-counter medicine together using this supply chain that's been developed over three generations. Uh, for me, it was this opportunity to better understand the world that like my family's been building in to, in my worst case scenario, just spend more time with people that I love. And mm-hmm. in my best case scenario, which is really what's manifested, is build a company that I'm proud of um, around a problem set that is really interesting to me. I'm going to spend my days working with people that I love. So that's interesting. Can I, and if I can interject there, cause you actually two, well, you didn't say this other word, but I'm going to, I'm going to interject it, but I think it, you're going down that path. Two words, you know, I always talk about to lead people to happiness is purpose and belonging. And you kind of mentioned both of them there. You mentioned that when you were at your the consulting firm, it didn't seem like you had purpose. Because my assumption is if you felt that was like the cat's pajamas, if you felt that was it, like you wouldn't even be looking at other options. You would have been so invested right. in that business, right? So you obviously weren't getting enough there and we can go into that. And then the belonging, it seems like kind of almost realizing is, and I think we all get into this, we get older and we realize like, you know what, we only have so much time Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my favorite, I don't know, have you ever read um, one of my favorite like articles, blogs by Tim Urban? It's called Wait But Why. Have you ever heard, read that? I have, yeah. And, and it's kind of one of these things like there's only so many days left that you get to spend with your parents or siblings or kids or whatever. And when you put it in that perspective, it's like, holy cow, like there's not a lot of time. Like we think there's a lot of time, but there's not. So anyways, that, that's a long way to say of it seems yeah. like maybe if I'm if I'm right, you're around your parents, family's important. You're like, wait a minute, why am I not doing something with yeah. them or at least around that, right? That's right. Yeah. When did, uh, I, I want to actually go back if I can. And I'm curious if, if it's in retrospect, if, if you knew this as a kid, but like, did you, all those, the challenges that you're trying to solve now with, with medicine and, and over-the-counter stuff, did you have that insight of, of like the challenges back then, or were you just a kid like, okay, this is interesting how this works. Like, like, you know, we can look back now and think we did, but did you, did you have that perspective or like, like how deep were you into it with what the family was doing? Yeah, I, I definitely did not have that perspective as a child. You know, it was fun to run around a factory and be like, this is cool. This is where things are made. But obviously as a kid, it was more um, a set of values that are instilled in you. And so in my, in my family's world, that was how do you build and manufacture in the world of medicine in a way that's environmentally sustainable, that's high quality, that takes care of the community that you're operating in. And I think a kid can understand those broader like principles. Mm-hmm. But where it really started to become interesting for me was as I got older, you walk into an average pharmacy and you just see 100 brands, thousands of plastic bottles, like a very confusing experience. And you can see how disconnected that is from like the care that you felt as a child, if you're in my shoes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where that all started to come together of, you know, we, we take for granted, I've at least taken for granted the level of care that I had growing up. And it was pretty clear that they didn't exist for many other people. As I grew older, saw the world that we buy medicine in. um, And then it definitely didn't adhere to some of those principles of environmental sustainability of care and quality. Yeah. So as someone like myself, that's kind of naive when it comes to like medicine. I mean, I fortunately, I don't take a lot of medicine. I haven't had to. Um, so I've been, I mean, I understand pharmacies and how they work and stuff. So it's not like that. But if, for someone like myself, again, being naive, what's changed? Like, so over that time when you were a kid to now, what's changed in terms of medicine 
Yeah. And then what hasn't changed? What, what's still the old way, the old guard? Can you share a little bit on both ends just so we have some context? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we specifically, as a company, focus in the world of over-the-counter medicines today. And if you look at most of your over-the-counter products, I'm talking about the things that you take when you have a headache, you have seasonal allergies, you have a cold or a flu. Um, fundamentally, those formulations have not evolved anywhere from 20, 30, 40, 50 years if we're talking about like our basic pain relievers. And in addition to the formulations remaining fairly constant, the experience around it has as well. So a lot of these products have been packaged in single-use plastic bottles. They're in branding that represents things that were created in the cases of some of the largest brands 55, 60 years ago mm. and haven't really evolved to meet the realities of today where in your average pharmacy there are 100-plus over-the-counter medicine brands, there are 2,500-plus options in your local CVS mm. versus maybe 20, 30 years ago would have been a fraction of those. And so I think... Things that haven't changed are formulations, the packaging, the experience. Um, things that have changed are the quantity of products available to us, which for a lot of our customers and a lot of people I talk to in random pharmacies just drives confusion and it drives like difficulty in figuring out what do I even need. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'd share is, is really interesting for, for me to have learned as well over the last few years is that most of the products that we take in the U.S., the clinical trials that were built on uh, were run on larger white men in the 1950s and 60s. And if you look at the average user of over-the-counter medicine in the U.S., the demographic is quite different than who the clinical trials are run on. And so there's this whole body of work that's emerging that, you know, super exciting for me, which is that are there ways to actually just modulate what we're taking? It might be as simple as changing the dosage form. It might be more complex than that to actually make medicine appropriate for the modern consumer. Uh, that obviously would evolve over time as well because consumer base today will look different than the one of 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Man, I probably go down that rabbit hole of just curiosity I have. We don't, we don't have to get into it today, I guess, unless you, unless you want to go a little bit. But Because I'm, well, I think like, you know, I have a son and I think about, you know, if he takes medicine, the dosage he's taking is way different than I would take. That's right. But to your point, you know, I'm a whatever 185 pound you know, six, two and a half shrinking, but male, right. Should, you know, a, a, a female that's five, two 125 pounds be taking the same thing. And may, I don't know if that's where you're leading at before, but maybe like, is, is there some sort of, can, can we get more specific? Like we do with other things, you know? Absolutely. And I think that that's spot on observation. And it's one of those things that when you apply some common sense to it, it's like, Hmm. Like we don't eat the same amount of food as humans if we weigh 100 pounds difference or um, in a lot of other worlds, uh, ever, other aspects of our life, there is a difference in what we take. But in medicine, it's always been if you're 12 years of age or older, you're going to take the same dosage form, whether you're a 12-year-old who weighs 70 pounds or a 50-year-old who weighs 200 pounds. And fundamentally, if you just apply common sense to that, that obviously doesn't make sense. But how that kind of impacts our overall health is that there have been a lot of studies in the last um, five, 10 years, really, that have shown that smaller dosage forms of medicine, typically with like prescription pharmaceuticals, but also now in OTCs, are more efficacious. So um, the simplest example for, for listeners is if you take melatonin, uh, it's actually most of the melatonin that you buy in a store might be three or five or 10 milligrams. 
Whereas the most studies that show highest efficacy of melatonin is closer to like one milligram, 0.5 milligrams, like dosage forms that don't even exist um, in your average pharmacy. Mm, interesting. We, and yeah, so how much of, and I'll, I want to get into kind of how you guys got started with the business, but if I jump ahead a little bit, how much of what you all are trying to do, because you mentioned obviously the environmental side, which is huge, right? That's such a big thing around the, the plastics, single use plastics. How much is around education and educating mm-hmm. the clients in a new way where yeah. we, we may not have been taught? I mean, hell, like I went, you know, I always talk about like not learning finance stuff growing up. And that's still, I see a huge issue with our, with our youth, but you know, I think about it now you brought up, I just kind of random curiosity is like, yeah, I don't remember when I've been educated on medicines and what to take and why to take them. And even do I need to take them? Like are the symptoms, could you let it kind of, could a couple hours go by and you'd be fine? Like, could you have that little I don't want to use, I guess I'll use the word pain versus having a pop up pill, you know, like, I don't know. These are things that just pop my head randomly, but. It's, it's a huge, education is a huge component of what we do. And I think as I think about our business, really our goal is to create more environmentally sustainable options for your everyday medicines, is to create products that are the highest quality the science can offer, and is to create products that offer personalized care. And for each of those pillars, there's an aspect of educating consumer around what does that even mean? I thought that the Tylenol I'm buying is the highest quality. I thought I think it is personalized. And part of it is showing the opportunity to, to be better than where we are today. For us as a business, we've always started with this mentality of like, let's fix the problems that are most visible to an average consumer. And so as we think about our packaging, for example, our goal is to eliminate plastic from our supply chain in the next six months. And so as we think about that, uh, Educating consumer that plastic is bad for the environment is a much easier thing to convey than the quality of your medicine may or may not be as high as it should be because they're global and fragmented supply chains. And so really we view it as how do we find the hook for customers to bring them into the world of cabinet and then share those stories from there. And for us, what we found is that the sustainability hook is quite clearly understood by our customers. Plastic is an enemy for uh, many folks, and for 16% of the market that wants to buy sustainable products, it's very well understood. That's our jumping off point to then sharing more around how do we ensure you have the highest quality medicine? How do we figure out if you even need that product in the first place? Or are there other remedies that we can offer you? Maybe it's just meditating for five or 10 minutes to alleviate that that headache versus taking a pain reliever. And yeah. um, I think there are a lot of ways we can go there that, that excite me. Yeah. And by the way, just for everyone listening in, as a disclaimer, we are not medical doctors. Any of the information shared here, run by your medical doctor. Um, this is more just for light banter on the podcast. So I got to make sure I plug that in for the, the legalese of it all. Um, so let, let's, uh, I want to I get back to getting started with this, because obviously that's such a, I, I'm always intrigued because you're in consulting that's the path you, you were doing that for a few years. And then you kind of make this, you veer off the ramp. How did, how did the first like six months go of the ideation of like, okay, we're going to do this and then actually doing it. Can you share some, you know, I, I maybe it's talking about your co-founder, how you met him. And I, I don't know, but can you share two or three of the, the blips on the map, if you will, that led you down that first, uh, that's first path. Absolutely. So uh, I met my co-founder Russ, almost a decade ago at, at that management consulting job. And so 
one of the greatest uh, joys of that job for me was having the opportunity to meet Russ, who's gone on to become my business partner, one of my closest friends and mentors. And really what that set off for me was the starter, the start of a deeper exploration of like, what is my purpose? What is my sense of belonging to use your words? And um, I think I started to realize in just deep conversations with Russ that there's an opportunity for us to take this supply chain that my family's built. At the time we were working on how to, uh, we were working on advising large companies on how to build social and environmental responsibility into the core business models. And so there's this really interesting intersection point for us of can we take the world that we operate in in this consulting environment, mm-hmm. telling businesses effectively how to build purposeful brands and combine that with the supply chain that we have. And so I'd say like one, you know, one vignette there is that just meeting Russ was super important. Um, as I think about the journey that's evolved since that, since the first day of cabinet, him being along for that has been a critical part of our success. The, the second thing I would share was we were like, if we think there's an opportunity to sell a new medicine brand online, let's just put a few products online and see if customers actually even want them. And so there was a huge element of this for us, which is like, let's just start selling. Let's get started. Uh, no need to over strategize this, which is funny because we're strategy consultants. And for once we just decided to put something online and see if it sold. So our first days of cabinet were when we put seven products online on amazon.com and the hypothesis we were trying to test was one, are customers even willing to buy from a new unknown brand on the internet? Two, can we activate the supply chain that we have? And then three, what are things that we're learning from customers that uh, we feel are pain points in the journey of buying medicine today, but wanted to see if they're actually real for other people as well. So for us, those products started selling well. It was a good enough signal for us to, to leave that full, that consulting job and jump full-time into the business. Again, so I'm going to go back to my naivety here because I'm going to ask this question and folks listen to me laugh at it, but I, I don't know the answer. So I'm going to ask it. That's what I do here. Can you, I mean, I can buy vitamins online. I buy my protein. I buy all that. Can you sell like the, the, I'll, we'll use a name brand, like the Tylenols or those of the world. Like, can you sell those on Amazon or what's the, what's the legalese, I guess, or the, the, the barriers to um, selling those types of products or are there any? Sure. So this is where some of my personal background becomes really important. And I think like full disclaimer, um, an significant competitive advantage for us that I know many folks don't have is this 55 years of manufacturing experience in this space. And what that allowed us to do was create our own brand. Cabinet is what's called a third party labeler by the FDA. What that means is we work with certified FDA facilities um, that happen to be connected or actual family of mine package the medicine into our own brand, into our own packaging at those facilities, and then have the requisite supply chain certifications to get listed on Amazon. And so there was a part of this where we were spending the first couple of months of the business just getting through that certification process, getting all the regulatory approvals, uh, and then started selling shortly thereafter. Um, but it wasn't quite as intense or extensive as I even thought. And so there's a lesson learned there where Part of my fear when starting this business was this is going to be a regulatory nightmare. It's going to be exceptionally complicated, which as we started to break down into the requisite pieces to bring a product to market actually started to become much more manageable and, and we worked through it. 
And, and just to be clear, so with going back to your family and the, and the supply chain stuff and the manufacturing, is is if my understanding correctly, like they're producing like a, like ibuprofen or something like that, and then yourself as well as maybe dozens and dozens of other companies are just white labeling. So it's the same product. It's just in a different bottle, sold at a different price, at a different spot. Is that is that what I'm understanding? How that works, or that's that's exactly right. And in the early days, it was the same product. Um, what we have now is what we call batch level quality testing. So every one of our medicines today, fast forward a few years, uh, is tested for carcinogens, toxic metals, and certain allergens. That doesn't exist in any other over the counter medicine product. And so. Mm-hmm. Early days was very much, let's just build a brand that looks nice, put a product in it and sell it. What it's evolved into for us is a product that's actually the highest quality that science can actually offer, uh, as well as packaging that's fully uh, compostable. So that's a, the, the differentiator for buying like your product online um, instead of over the counter, I guess, is the quality control. Like that's a, obviously a big piece. You know that you're getting a clean product, if you will. That, that's right. And I think for, you know, for different customers, as you can imagine, they're different value props. For some people, it's just, this looks nice in my medicine cabinet, so I'm going to buy it. Um, yeah. And we're equally happy to, to be able to serve that customer as we are, someone who's much more quality focused or sustainability focused. Yeah. Did you have, uh, you mentioned obviously family being important to you. And, uh, and that was one of the drivers around this, you know, kind of going this route. But did you have any pushback from your family? Like, did you, were they because they've been doing it for a certain way all along. And now you come and you're, you're kind of doing it, a, you know, you're similar, but they're different. Did, was there any like pushback or internal dialogue with them? of like, Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> it's a, uh, it's really funny because I think they've been exceptionally supportive of building kind of what they see as the next ever evolution, the next generation of being in this space where, mm-hmm. you know, for years, um, a little bit of the background is my grandfather built, an acetaminophene factory, which is like the raw ingredient manufacturer, one step up the supply chain, like the next generation of kind of family network built manufacturers and made tablets and soft gels. So took those raw ingredients and turned them into the things that we consume. The next generation then built like importing and packaging facilities. Mm. And so it's this funny evolution of how do we get closer and closer to a customer? Uh, And ultimately what Russ and I are doing now, my co-founder is building the direct consumer channel so that we can take that supply chain and bring products directly to consumers. And I think there was a very natural evolution there that my family is exceptionally supportive around. But what's been really fun for me is there are always questions of, you know, changing packaging in the world of pharma is not the easiest thing to do. It requires a lot of uh, regulatory navigation, approvals from the supply chain, and even as simple as like changing the machinery that we do packaging on. Uh, which presents a lot of fun complications for my for my aunt and uncle, but we we work through it together, and um, I think they've always believed in the mission of building a more sustainable product line and, and selling direct to consumer, and I think that's fundamentally what allows us to persevere when some of those challenges come up. Yeah, well, and that's what I was going to ask. Kind of, if you're looking back the last uh, couple of years, what has been the biggest hurdle or challenge with the business that you guys have experienced? Yeah, I think there's. Um, one is just the space we're in actually changing the packaging around the medicines that we're using or implementing new quality uh, measurements or products that we've been taking for decades. Uh, it's, it's quite challenging to a find the right partners to even bring those things to life. And then B 
navigate the regulation around it. So breaking those out a little bit, um, finding a partner for us, what that means is how do we find the right manufacturers to create packaging that isn't plastic bottles? When you start a company in healthcare, your typical options are things will be plastic, uh, packaged in plastic because it's sterile, it's safe, it gets thrown away at the end of its use. Um, so for us, the first challenge is how do we build a network of suppliers that can create packaging with us that's as sustainable uh, as throwing a banana peel away, but as shelf-stable as a plastic bottle? And so we've spent the last two years doing that. And I would say that that challenge is a combination of like creating materials that don't exist in market today, finding the right suppliers to do that, uh, and then going through what you typically do when working with a new material or supplier, which is things don't always work perfectly. Um, the second challenge I would I would share is just more on like the quality side of it too, which is if you want to test medicine at the batch level in the supply chain, um, there is like an unknown, an untold story in the world, which is that if you find something that's wrong with your medicines, you have to scrap that whole batch. You have to go down the supply chain and you have to talk to manufacturers to figure out like how to adjust that, which is a lot of work. And fundamentally getting an entire supply chain to buy into that when the largest retailers in the US don't actually even demand that is exceptionally challenging, but it's definitely a challenge worth fighting for because ultimately at the end of the day, it means that our customers don't have to worry about having carcinogens or toxic metals or something that they're allergic to in their product. Um, and so I would really bucket that as like, you know, the R&D world here is, is quite, quite complex. And then the last challenge within that is the regulation is not written for, for plastic-free packaging. And this is actually true in a lot of industries in the U.S., but if you look at FDA regulatory guidance, it's based around plastic packaging. It's based around having plastic caps that fit tightly on bottles. And so anyone who's innovating in the space on building a medical device that gives you medicine in a smarter way, changing packaging to be more sustainable has to figure that out as well. Are you having to like actually go and I don't know if I'd use the word like lobby for this stuff, but like, are you trying to get like uh, laws changed? Like, do you have to go that far or is there rules in already in current you know, legislation or. Yeah, it's a great question. I think as we, we think about our business, one of our goals is to inspire the broader pharmaceutical industry to reduce the plastic usage that they have today. There are 194 billion single use plastic bottles produced by the pharma industry every single year. A fraction of those are recycled, probably 2 to 3%. The rest go in oceans, landfills, they're incinerated. And so as we think about that problem set, one of our goals with Cabinet is how do we at least inspire parts of the industry to start to think that they need to eliminate plastic, they need to reduce the plastic that they use in their packaging. How we do that, I think, can manifest in many ways. Um, the first one that's made me really excited over the last year is that there's been a significant growth in consumer demand as well as like enterprises demanding for more sustainable options that I think will pull the market forward. Naturally, as the market moves forward, the regulations will come alongside that or slightly behind that. And so there is a route where we build a commercial case for this. 16% of the market in the U.S. is buying sustainable products and consumer goods. And there's a big enough market there that companies figure it out, regulation will follow. There is a second route where we take a more proactive approach, which is more of a policy-based one, where you know, we go and advocate for allowing regulation or enabling regulation to allow non-plastic options as well. 
Um, you know, we're a small company. We're not a lobbying firm. I think that's a very different approach and it's not the core business we're in. But what's been really interesting for us is that at a city level, that starts to become interesting as well, where there's certain states, there's certain cities that already have you know, leading edge regulations around plastic usage that can almost be like a bottoms up approach to get to a larger government agency. But um, I would definitely say we're not in the business of lobbying. I think the way that Russ and I look at it is how do we inspire the market to change through just a commercial business case of so 16% of the market wants this, large enterprises want this, there's a lot of money to be made here, and there's a lot of good to be done if you have more sustainable products. Yeah. How, how are y'all thinking about, because obviously you, you mentioned before, you're kind of bit the family businesses over the generations have been more kind of a B2B type, if you will, right? When you think of direct-to-consumer and actually getting people to think differently about this, has that been hard in terms of customer acquisition, in terms of educating the market? I'm like, hey, this product exists and, and this is where it's helpful. Have you guys had a challenge or has it been an easier road, do you think, just because of the sustainability of this? I think it's definitely a challenge. And this is where it's funny. Some of like the deeper philosophical things that we want our business to be are often quite different than works what works effectively from like a marketing tact. So, you know, Russ and I really care about sustainability, quality, personalized care. Frankly, there for some customers, the easiest way to tell that story is to get them hooked on the fact that this looks nicer than any medicine in their cabinet today. So there are some fun lessons learned for us in there as well, which are the marketing copy and messaging is not always, doesn't always need to be like the depth and the philosophy of the brand. And the way that we've, kind of reconciled with that is we can tell that story once once you're in the door, once you're in the website, once you're talking to us, once you've bought a product from us, we can start to unpeel that onion and share with you like what we're really trying to do. What I would say though is, you know, we sell direct to consumer today. There are a lot of messaging points there, like looks nicer, sustainable, high quality. But in the world of going back to those B2B routes, some of our ambitions as we look to the next few years are how do we actually get the product on the shelf at a Target um, where it's actually sitting there right next to the store brand or the name brand and you can quickly just see cabinet or sustainable option. It looks nicer, certified B Corp, high quality and slightly more than perhaps a store brand, um, significantly cheaper than the name brand. Yeah. And so I think part of how consumers buy OTCs today is also just it needs to be present in those environments to be able to convey to customers there is a better way forward. And so that's something else we're working on as we think about the next couple of years. Yeah, because I can imagine too, like the, just like probably cost for other things, like that brand name, you're paying for the marketing, you're paying for the, you know, so some of these other companies that charge a certain amount is because they have to market the product. They have to package it with, you know, the big boxes and all this stuff. So there's probably some additional costs that are probably unnecessary, right? That's, that's exactly right. And I think as you, uh, the, the untold secret in this space is the medicine itself does not cost a lot at all. Like the products are made in, in the millions at a time. It's really the packaging, the shipping to the store, the branding, the marketing that is like the biggest cost driver. And so if you start to kind of break that apart and instead of spending those dollars on the same old plastic packaging, reinvesting that in better packaging into better experience. There's an opportunity to have products that are reasonably priced, um, still drive enough margin for us as a business to reinvest in the consumer experience, um, creating a win-win scenario, at least in, in my view. Hmm. 
Let me ask just a one or two more questions if I could. Um, I'm actually just curious from going from the consulting, you're kind of just, you're, you're, you're a worker bee, right? And working for a company, right? You're just a number probably with the consulting firm. There might be, you know, probably thousands of people to going and being the CEO of a, of a startup, basically. I guess my question is, and, and answer this however you want, um, like what part of the day is there's the excitement and, and you're just overwhelmed with like, this is awesome versus the pulling your hair out. Like mm. what the heck did I get myself into? Like, do you, yeah. do you have that tussle throughout the day of, of uh, working through kind of all the kinks in a new business? Absolutely. So every day, uh, every day is a new adventure. And I think embracing the fact that there are things that are going to break and go off the rails every single day um, is how I've dealt with it. I remember the first the first month or two of like being full-time on building cabinet, uh, I was like, what did I get myself into? Like every day, you, know, you come from this very structured milestone-based world of consulting, and all of a sudden you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the time frame I need to do this thing in? Like no one's holding me accountable to it. I don't really know what the execution bar is. And you start to learn how to create systems for yourself that allow you to, to operate even and like function. And I think some of those systems are more methodical and pragmatic of like setting your own milestones and making sure you know you have a way to execute well. But I think they're more uh, ones that are for your own mental and physical health, frankly, as well, which are how do I deal with like the stress of this? And I think for me, everyone has their own approach, but for me, it's just been embracing that things are going to break. And if I think about the last year, uh, I could probably not tell you a single thing that I was super stressed about for a day or two and recount it in like extreme detail. And what that means for me is that the things that in the moment might feel like these giant problems or are going to like end the business, we figure out a way to work through them. Like I sit down with Russ, talk to our mentors, we build a plan and we work through it. And then six months later, 12 months later, I won't even remember that thing. And I think that's been a really important thing for me to try to bring to bear every day is that in those moments of stress, and anxiety and things feeling like they're breaking, just remembering that that's part of the building a business and that's part of the fun of it as we like look back. Uh, and ultimately like those aren't the things that kill a business. It's like if you, if you have a good foundation of relationships with your team and your, your co-founder, everything else can kind of figure itself out. Hmm. If I have you back on the podcast in let's say two years, yeah. what would you be hopeful of where you all have gone with the business? Are there some milestones kind of in the distance that you're hoping to hit that, that you would be willing to share. I'm just kind of curious how you guys think about the future. Yeah. So for, for me, I think we're just getting started. Um, we've, we've built a sizable business to date selling online and direct to consumer, but 85% of us consumers still buy medicine in stores. So two years from now, I want to be in your local pharmacy. I want to be in your local supermarket. I want to be in your local target so that when you have, this trip to go and buy over-the-counter medicine, you at least have the option to buy from a sustainable brand. You at least have the option to buy from a brand that's high quality so that you can buy products for your family that are, that are safe and efficacious. And so as I think about what I'm hopeful for is that Cabinet becomes a household name in the next couple of years, maybe not two years, but, but five years from now. And then from a team perspective, um, I hope that our team never forgets that the point of building our business is to build a more sustainable high quality, like care centric experience. I think one of the biggest barometers of my own success as a leader in the coming years will be if 
we hire a team that believes in that. They continue to believe in that and they build for that reason. That's yeah, that's awesome to hear. Well, let's go back to, and you can go back a few years. You can go back 10. Uh, I'll let you pick, but um, let's say someone's getting started right now. They might not be starting a, a business like yours, that size or anything like that, but they're getting started with whatever. And, and, you know, there's that fear, that uncertainty, that doubt they're, they're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Is there something you've learned in the last few years, 10 years, whatever, um, that you would share as like, you know, kind of a lasting lesson for them. Maybe it's a quote you live by. It could be anything, but I'd be curious your thoughts on what piece of advice would you share that's been the most, you know, sizable for you in your career? Yeah, I think the biggest learning for me is like always default to action. And what that means is if you have an idea, you're thinking about a business, you're thinking about a project, even if even if it's just in like your day-to-day job, just start working on it. I think that the number of times that I have written out a strategy or like try to whiteboard something or told myself, you know, I'm going to think about this for a couple more weeks. Um, you know, I've done that a ton. The reality though, is that that two weeks later, that strategy session later, it's the same exact thing and idea and concept in my mind, or at least like 90% of the same. And I've learned more from actually building than I have from building strategies, like without a doubt. And so I, my, my core advice is just, start moving, build momentum for yourself, whatever that might look like and what you're doing, uh, and then learn as you're, as you're building. Um, I think a lot of folks can get, can get stuck on, you know, this plan isn't perfect yet. The strategy isn't perfect yet. What I can tell you with certainty is that no plan is perfect. Like no strategy is perfect. In fact, they're mostly always going to be wrong in some way, shape or form. But what you can do is actually start building momentum, moving forward and, and building things quickly. And I think that's, a lesson that I, I continue to tell myself every day and, and one that I think is really important. I, I love that advice. It, it kind of reminds me, uh, and you kind of think about like a child, you know, if, they, if they're going into a sandbox and play, they're not sitting there ideating for 20 minutes. They jump in, they start building. And if they don't like it, they take it down and they build again. Like it's, it's kind of that creativity and letting it just go. And then you start to kind of navigate and you build better and better or you pivot and change but you're always moving forward with that action. So yeah, I love that. Love that insight. If any, anyone wants to say hello to you online, connect further, where's the best spot for them to go? Yeah, they can email me directly. My email is achal, A-C-H-A-L at wearecabinet.com. Awesome. Achal, it's been awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining. This was a, a fun conversation and uh, I'm excited to see y'all's growth uh, in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me and the thoughtful questions. It's been a pleasure. But I hope you all enjoyed that great interview, and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along in your day. If you were looking for some more resources, some more insight, you know, inspiration, things that get you going a little bit further on your journey, feel free to head over to my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter that comes out. That's more of a digest of a lot of information that I discover throughout the week, whether it's a new podcast I listen to, or maybe it's a great follow online that's very insightful or a video I came across. I put that in a digestible form that you get once a week as well as I blog three times a week. And these are very micro-type blogs, one to five-minute reads. They hit your inbox Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning and maybe give you a little dose of inspiration to get you going on your day. So feel free to sign up for those if it's something you might find as value. Thanks again for listening in. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.